If you're with us for the first time today, I would make you aware of a couple things about Woodford Presbyterian Church. One is, is that we're in the midst of a season of blessing now. And that's not always been the case. There have been times when the Lord has humbled us and corporately brought us low as a congregation. But this is a distinct season of blessing. And the primary way that I point to that is the large number of children the Lord has been giving us. Why, just even in the last 48 hours, the Lord has blessed us with another Daniel Whitten. And so for those, those of you who are sometimes slow to pick up on who we're speaking of, if, we, if you hear of a Daniel Whitten being rocked in the nursery, that's little Daniel Whitten. But if we're speaking about needing a deacon to help, that's big Daniel or old Daniel Whitten. The second thing I would tell you if you're visiting with us today is our normal pattern is to engage in consecutive expository preaching. That is where we go through a book or a section of scripture and we preach through it context by context from the beginning to the end, not leaving anything out. And so our normal pattern is to preach through New Testament books in our morning service, and that's what we're doing. You can turn to 1 Peter 4 because we're going to be expounding the next context. And in the evening service, we are preaching through the book of Joshua, and we would certainly invite you to be with us tonight at 6 p.m. as we Keep the whole Lord's Day holy, and as we seek to turbocharge your sanctification, I'll ask you, as I do on a regular basis, which do you think will accrue to your sanctification and your growth in grace? Hearing the Word of God preached 52 times a year or 104 times a year? That's really the difference in, in being regular both in the morning preaching of the Word and the evening preaching of the Word. Well, one of the great misunderstandings of the contemporary church is the word stewardship. Whenever I use that term, people immediately and only think he's going to talk about money. But scripture is far deeper than that. To understand stewardship, we need to define what a steward is using four elements. In our text today, the whole concept of being stewards is raised. And so I want to engage in some definition before we even get to our text. This is a somewhat lengthy introduction, but a necessary one. In our text today, it speaks of being a steward. And this is speaking of every person who names the name of Jesus. They are called a steward. The problem is we never use that term in contemporary culture. And so let me give you the four elements that scripture means when it speaks of a steward. The first is a steward owns nothing because God owns everything. The psalmist is speaking of this when he says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. It's a blanket statement. God is the owner of everything. Why? Because he created everything without any aid, we're told in Psalm 24. And God specifically in different places in the scripture goes through and lists what he owns. For example, in Leviticus 25, for the laws for the year of Jubilee, the Lord says, the land is mine. And so right now, if you think you hold a deed or a title to a piece of land, it's a fiction. Because the Lord says in his inerrant word, that's my property. The land is mine. You're but a steward of it. Or if you think you have a huge fortune in gold, bullion, or silver, and think it's mine, the Lord says no. In Haggai chapter 2, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. And so the first thing you need to know about being a steward is the steward owns nothing. What we're going to be talking about today are specific gifts, but the steward owns nothing because God owns everything. 
The second thing that makes a steward a steward is the steward is placed in a position of trust. It's a very familiar picture in our Lord's parables of a man left in charge of a stewardship. For example, in Matthew 25, one of the many parables where this term comes up, we hear of the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them to steward. When Sandy and I were in seminary in St. Louis, we would regularly house sit for a dear family. They left their six children with us. We were stewards of their kids. We had to get their six children to school, prepare meals for them, help with the homework, feed the dogs, drive their cars, solve the problems, and hold down the fort until the parents returned. We'd been entrusted with everything they held valuable. We were stewards. A third element that makes a steward a steward is the steward governs everything. You see, stewards can sometimes delude themselves into thinking they're actually owners because they've been giving the, given the governance of everything. But that's only because the Lord has given us the dominion mandate to exercise dominion over all we steward. The fourth element that makes a steward a steward, and this is really the key element of what makes a steward one, is the steward will give a precise accounting on the last day for all he's been given. This is the key idea of stewardship. In Romans 14, the apostle Paul says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Each of us shall give an account of himself to God. This is the punchline of so many parables of Christ. The owner or master returns, that is Christ, and says, what have you done? And the steward knows that his owner is returning and will ask him pointed questions like, how have you managed my things I've left in your trust? The steward is prepared to give an account. So what is it the Lord is looking for from a steward? This is all going to come in play in our text this morning where it speaks of you and I being stewards. The Lord's looking for three things. He's first looking for a consistent acknowledgement of ownership. David was the master of this, the psalmist in 1 Chronicles 29. We hear these words, David, bless the Lord before all the assemblies saying, O Lord, all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. David, on a regular basis, when people said, Oh, David, you, you've been so shrewd with your accumulation of finances and goods. David said, It's not mine. Do you deflect that on a regular basis and acknowledge the ownership? Is it your regular practice to say, Lord, it's all yours. I've been getting a little too tight a grip here. I need to acknowledge that this house is yours. The car is yours. The bank accounts are yours. That's what a steward does. He acknowledges the ownership of God. The second thing the Lord is looking for from stewards is faithfulness. The scripture repeatedly, like a drumbeat, states, such as in 1 Corinthians 4, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Meaning stewards must be steady, reliable. They long to hear those most glorious words of welcome from the lips of their Redeemer. Well done, good and faithful servant. A steward must be faithful. The third thing that the Lord is looking for in a steward is profitability. What do I mean by that? In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches the parable of the talents 
Profitability means that God is not a nonprofit corporation. When he entrusts you with a home, a salary, a child, a spiritual gift, he desires a return on your investment. Has he given you a tongue? Then you must use it to proclaim Christ. Has he given you spiritual gifts? Then you must use them, as we'll see today in our text. You must use them for the building up of the body. What happens to worthless stewards? We're told repeatedly by our Lord Jesus, such as in Matthew 25, that they're cast into outer darkness. Why? Because the fact that he's a wicked, lazy steward is proof there's no grace at work in his life. What happens to bad stewards? Everything they have is taken away. The scriptures tell us that you and I are stewards of at least seven commodities. Let me remind you of what those are. We speak of this on a regular basis, but I want to remind you because today we're going to be looking at one of those commodities God has given to you to steward. But there's at least seven distinct commodities that you will give an account for. The first is your words. Every word you speak, you'll give an account for. You'll be held accountable. Jesus says in Matthew 12, every idle word that men speak, they will give account for in the day of judgment. And so I would ask you about your words. Is your tongue filled with the praise of Christ? That's the best stewardship of our tongue. At every possible opportunity to praise Christ, you lift your voice and praise him. Are your words true? Are your words too many? Are your words filled with encouragement? Or are you like a dark cloud of discouragement? A second commodity God has given you to steward is your wealth. Scripture repeatedly states that you'll be held accountable for all of your funds, how you earn, how you spend, how you save, how you give. A third commodity God has given you is your children. Are children a blessing? Absolutely. By the way, the world completely disagrees with you. If the world were to walk in here and see your children right now and to hear us rejoicing over having more children, they would say, what is wrong with you people? Don't you know that children are a pain and a drain? And so the world seeks to kill children at its earliest opportunity. But we understand that our children are a gift and they are a stewardship. You will be held accountable for all of your parenting decisions. A fourth commodity the Lord has given you is a vocation. And the Lord tells you that he gives you that vocation so you may do your labor as unto the glory of God. A fifth stewardship is your time. Whether it be those six work days a week or the Lord's day where the entire day belongs to him. You are commanded to redeem the time because you will give an accounting for it. A sixth commodity the Lord has given every believer. Not every believer, actually. The elders are given the stewardship of the church. The elders are told in Hebrews 13 that they must watch out for the souls of the congregation as those who will give an account a weighty thing to be an elder in Christ's church. But the seventh, and this goes to our context, I hope you're looking at 1 Peter 4 now, but in 1 Peter 4, this is another stewardship text, for we are told in our text in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, as each one 
has received a spiritual gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now let me point something out to you. It is hard to be a steward of your spiritual gifts if you don't know what a spiritual gift is or if you don't know what your particular spiritual gifts are. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul addresses the Corinthian church and tells them that he wants them to be informed because they've been uninformed and the church is confused. He wants them to be informed about the subject of spiritual gifts. Why? Because there was great confusion in the church over this. Now, I'm not going to fill my head with delusions and think this congregation is any different than the rest of American evangelicalism. I'm pretty sure that there are many people under the sound of my voice this morning who are either ignorant of the subject of spiritual gifts or confused about the subject of spiritual gifts. In 2023, the Barna Group surveyed a huge number and tens of thousands of American evangelicals, and only 30% of American evangelicals could name a spiritual gift they possess. Only 30%. And then on top of that, in the same survey, over 40% of evangelicals, when they were asked what their gifts were, named something that's not listed as a spiritual gift in the scriptures, such as, my spiritual gift is singing, my spiritual gift is listening, my spiritual gift is cooking. My favorite was a woman we had in our congregation in Las Vegas who told me, my spiritual gift is the gift of criticism. And she exercised her gift freely. <laughs> Today, I want to remedy any confusion. I want to correct the errant, and I want to teach the ignorant. And so you can go a long way down the road towards understanding how to be a good steward of your gifts by having your Bible open. Because not only are we going to look at this text, you'll see that there are three other texts where the subject of spiritual gifts are addressed. You might think, oh, the subject is too big. Actually, no. It's addressed in four texts, easily masterable. You could, you could study those four texts this afternoon and still have time for a nap. And so I'm going to tell those to you what they are and try to shed some light on this subject. Let's seek the help of the Lord now. O oh God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, we plead with you now to open our minds that as your word is proclaimed, we may be guided into your truth and taught your will for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The first thing I want to uh, help you with is those texts where the scriptures speak of spiritual gifts. You'll, you'll already see it in 1 Peter 4, but I want to start at the beginning. And I want you to think of this as sort of an inverted funnel that's getting smaller and smaller, yet clearer and clearer. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, and this is the first text in the New Testament where spiritual gifts are spoken of. And the reason why I want to introduce you to these four texts is I want to convince you today that this is not a peripheral text. I can't tell you how many folks have told me, Carl, you know, there are a lot of times I check out because I think this text is not for me. I, I can assure you of this subject today. This text is for you. Because every single believer, and I say that without any fear of contradiction, every single believer has been given spiritual gifts. This applies to you. So in 1 Corinthians 12, you'll notice that this is the exhaustive list, and this is every spiritual gift that has ever occurred. Now, I'm going to quickly point out that most of these gifts have been taken away after the death of the last apostle. 
But I want you to, I want to be fair and let you see a sampling. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, pick up in verse 8, where Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, lists over a dozen gifts. And he says they're the gift of wisdom, of knowledge, of faith, of healing, of miracles, of prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, apostles, prophets, down in verse 28, teachers, workers of miracles, healing, helps, and administration. Now, you may have been stuck just a moment ago when I said we believe the majority of the gifts on that specific list have ceased with the death of the last apostle. We believe these charismatic gifts, the charismata, have ceased. Yes, we are cessationists. Now, let me tell you why we believe that. Because some of you may have grown up in a Pentecostal setting or may have come from that sort of background. I've preached several times in, in these settings. Um, and I will tell you, we have good reasons for thinking that. The first is the evidence of history. After the close of the first century, we have no reports of these gifts for hundreds and hundreds of years. If these gifts, the charismata, are so vital to the operation of the church, we would expect to see them in prominent operation in the 4th century, in the 9th century, the 13th century, but the exact opposite is true. They disappear. A second reason why we think the charismata have ceased is because in their contemporary use, there's an absolute lack of similarity with the New Testament use of those gifts. For any phenomena to claim to be the same gift as those of the apostolic age, there must be great similarity. And so let me ask these questions of those who claim the charismata are still operating. Today, do church leaders discern hypocrisy and pronounce the immediate death of members as Peter did to Sapphira in Acts 5? No. Do evangelists amaze entire regions of the country with real miracles, medically verifiable healings, as Philip did in Samaria in Acts 8? No. Are those people who claim to be apostles then immediately teleported to another place of ministry by the Holy Spirit, as Philip was in Acts 8? No. Do prophets actually give specific prophecies which come to pass soon after? Like the one in Acts 11, we read there, Prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout the world, which happened then in the days of Claudius Caesar. No. When speaking in tongues takes place, and I'm using scare quotes around that, when speaking in tongues takes place, is it according to the biblical parameters? By the way, I've preached through the years at several charismatic churches, and I've never seen this order followed, not once. I preached several years ago in a charismatic church in Memphis. The pastor is a friend of mine. And of course, it was what you expect in a charismatic church. All kinds of people standing up and speaking at the same time. Complete disorder, and so after the service, I said to this dear brother, I said, you know that scripture regulates the speaking in tongues. Really? I said, yeah, in 1 Corinthians 14, it must be two, no more than three. Hmm. They must take orderly turns. Really? It must be followed by the gift of interpretation. Really? If there's no interpreter, the tongue speaker must sit down and keep silent. Really? 
And the direct imperative is given for women not to prophesy. And all of the people who stood up and spoke in tongues were women. And so we would say, no, these gifts have ceased because the gifts as they are exercised bear no resemblance to what we see in Scripture. And also the gift of tongues exercised today is gibberish, contrary to the nature of the New Testament gift of tongues, which was a known human language. And there are other reasons why we would say the gifts have ceased, those charismatic gifts. Because the ceasing of the apostolic office, an apostle was one who could perform miracles, one who had seen the risen Lord. This is why Paul specifically stated they had seen the risen Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 to prove his apostleship. And so at the death of the last apostle, probably John, we would claim that the apostolic gifts ceased. That's why we're called cessationists. And finally, we would say, we believe this. We believe in the, the cessation of the charismata because the stated claim that's always made to new revelations is false. Because the last prophet has come. That's the theme of Hebrews 1. The last prophet has come. Could there be a better prophet than him? And we're told in Hebrews 1, in the, with the coming of the last prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, God has spoken fully and finally. The canon of scripture is now closed. And now with the whole Bible and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have no need of new revelations. Look at the second text that speaks to gifts, Ephesians 4. And again, notice that this, our funnel is winnowing down from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, which is wide. Now to Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 11. Paul speaks now of the gifts being men. No less than J.I. Packer points out the authoritative interpretation of this text is where Paul speaks of gifts here, speaking of gifted men. Still speaking of those who would hold to charismatic gifts, he says the gifts are apostles, well, there are no more. Prophets, you have the full word of prophecy sitting on your lap right now. Evangelists and pastor teachers. Then look at the third text, and our funnel gets narrower and clearer. Look at Romans 12. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, where the Apostle Paul gives a handful of gifts. In Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, Paul speaks of the gifts being there, prophecy, ministry, and this refers to diaconal service, teaching, mercy, Oh, for the Lord to raise up a horde of people with the gift of mercy in our midst. And the next gift, encouragement or exhortation, giving and leadership. And so now when we funnel down to the simplest listing of gifts, it's in our text. Look back at 1 Peter 4, where Peter, and I deeply appreciate his simplicity, with the broadest of brushes, Peter paints two Classes of gifts, speaking gifts, and serving gifts, or ministering gifts. You notice in our text there, Peter makes, is making the subject of spiritual gifts incredibly simple. Speaking gifts or ministering. And these two broad categories of spiritual gifts roughly correspond to the offices of elder and deacon. 
If you have speaking gifts, that would be one aspect of qualification for the eldership. If you have serving gifts, that would be one aspect of the qualification for deacon. Now, we know, just in terms of a, of a balance, we know that the Lord only gives speaking gifts to a few people. Remember what we're told in James chapter 3, that it is the Lord's plan for a few of you to become teachers, to exercise speaking gifts. So by deduction, we can ascertain that the vast majority of believers have some kind of serving gifts, or as Peter calls them, ministering gifts. Now, I want, to, I want to wear this subject out with you, and I want you to notice what it means to be a Presbyterian and Reformed and to talk about spiritual gifts. Now, I'm really going to ask you to get, you're going to have to juggle for a moment. Grab your hymnal and turn to page 919. Perhaps you have that friend sitting in the pew next to you, and so lean over and say, he's, he's talking to you right now. If you have a friend who says, well, I, I know Carl doesn't do it much, and Scotty and Taylor don't. I think Dan probably does sometimes. But um, if, if you have that friend who says, well, I really have the gift of apostleship. I'm a prophet. I speak in tongues in my closet sometimes, and I get new revelations, words of knowledge and all that. My friend, they cannot be a Presbyterian. Look at page 919, our confession. In the very first chapter we confess, chapter 1, section 1, after speaking of new revelations, notice what it says. Those former, former, previous ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Feel free, by the way, in your hymnal to underline that section for somebody who will come along behind you and pick that up. And then look at 1.6. Again, same creed. This is our public theology. This is what we've held to for 400 years. Look at 1.6. Nothing at any time is to be added to the word of God, whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men. So what this means is no PCA minister, no PCA elder or deacon may hold or teach that the revelatory functions Revelatory gifts are functional today. They are bound by their ordination vows. They cannot think such a thing. They must be cessationist. Notice where our creed discusses that. First chapter. It's a first order issue when we talk about the word of God. The word of God is that which is full and complete and closed. The charismatic gifts are those which are 1,900 years in the rearview mirror. It's interesting where our creed does discuss this. In chapter 26 of our creed, it discusses them under the subject of communion in each other's gifts and graces. Spiritual gifts are not discussed in some private or individualistic setting, but in the midst of our discussion of shared life, the gifts are for one another. Now, the reason why I want to emphasize this is you will hear charismatic friends who will say, well, Carl, I never, I'm not the type who, you know, flips over pews during our worship service. I'm not the par person who breaks out in tongues in worship. But I have the gift of tongues, but I only exercise those at home. I have the private gift of tongues. I exercise those in my prayer closet where I have a private prayer language. I have the gift, but really no one benefits from it. This is an erroneous view of the nature of spiritual gifts. Because spiritual gifts are always, always for the benefit of others. 
That's why Peter in our text, look at 1 Peter 4.10. Peter says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Whatever gift it is you have, and we're going to narrow down even more in just a moment and try to help you identify your gifts. <clears throat> but whatever gift you have, it has to be used for others. Now, let's ask and answer a few simple questions about spiritual gifts. Who has them? Look at our text in 1 Peter 4.10. Each one has received a gift. Paul says the same thing, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 12.7, when Paul says the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. When Paul writes to his Gentile congregation in Corinth, fresh out of paganism, and Peter does the same thing, writing to largely Gentiles. These apostles assure these brand new believers that they have spiritual gifts. That Paul or Peter don't say, now you realize you're going to have to wait 10, 20 years, maybe 25, until the Lord gives you spiritual gifts. They are willing to say to these brand new Gentile believers, you have spiritual gifts. The ultimate example of that is Paul. Three days after his conversion, he's been in the kingdom three days. He was told by Ananias who came to visit him, Paul was still blind after having been struck blind by the glorious Christ. Paul was told by Ananias that his ministry gift was to get up and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Even the newest believer, three days old in Christ, has spiritual gifts. Every regenerate person possesses spiritual gifts. Regenerate children and youth. One of the things that I'm on a crusade for today is to talk to people who are at two ends of the age spectrum. Because oftentimes you have 11 and 12, 13 year olds who they would say, I'm regenerate, I'm converted, great. What are your gifts and how are you using them? Me? Gifts? I was planning on waiting until I was like old, like my parents or something. No, if you're converted, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you and he brought gifts. He never comes into Hampton. The same thing happens with 70 and 80-year-olds. What are your gifts and where are you using them? Oh, Carl, I've, I've kind of entered spiritual retirement. Where is that in the scriptures? What we're going to see on Sunday evenings is we're going to examine Joshua and Caleb in great depth over the next few weeks. And we're going to see these men turning 80 and 90 and still exercising their gifts of leadership and administration. And so nobody can say, I'm opting out because I'm too young or too old. Now, I've done something at this. I, I hope that at least one or two of you have been thinking, Carl keeps talking about spiritual gifts. What is he talking about? I don't know what these are. Many err at this point when defining spiritual gifts. Don't mistake worldly talent or knowledge for spiritual gifts. My favorite example is, people who have had great training and they're outstanding in music. They'll come in and say, well, my spiritual gift is music. Look back over those four gift lists. You won't see music there. The reason why is anything lost people can do is not a spiritual gift. It's a talent or a learned ability. And thank God for those people who have those talent and learned ability. But don't try to make it more spiritual than it is. I've had people say all things, all sorts of things. I've had a friend in Las Vegas, and he said, my spiritual gift is auto repair. And I said, could you find that in a concordance for me, please? I don't see it in any of the four gift lists. 
So let me give you a definition. And hopefully this afternoon as you grapple with this and around the lunch table as you try to identify your own gifts, use this definition. Spiritual gifts are extraordinary endowments bestowed by the Spirit of God upon the believer, equipping him for service and edification in the church. Let me give you that definition again because I think it's important. Spiritual gifts are extraordinary endowments bestowed by the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God upon the believer, at conversion, equipping him for service and edification in the church. Now, at this point, one of you, two of you maybe, are thinking, I don't like the spiritual gifts I have. I, I, it's, it's obvious that the Lord has given me gifts of mercy, and that gets tiresome. And so I could, Carl, can I swap out with you? Who decides who gets which gifts? Well, the Holy Spirit does. He's sovereign. Just like every other aspect of the Christian life, it's under the sovereignty of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, listen to what Paul says about who decides who gets which gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now this is good because this rules out boasting. It's the Spirit who gives for ministry. And so if you are a spectacular encourager, you can't say, yep, been to the Dale Carnegie School two or three times on this. And I have to tell you, I'm, Carl, I'm the best encourager in this church. My friend, if you have gifts of encouragement, it's because God has sovereignly given them to you. This also rules out envying of gifts. That would be criticism of the way the Holy Spirit runs the church. Now let me dig in deep and tell you what the purpose of spiritual gifts are. Look back at your text in 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11. The first purpose, and if you're, if you're not a Presbyterian and you come here today, let me in on a secret, especially if you're a kid and you're going to Sunday school class. This is the right answer to half of all questions that ever get asked in church. And the other answer is Jesus. So when my kids were little and I would ask them, what was Sunday school about today? And our oldest son, John, picked up on this quicker and I would ask his brother, his sister, and I would say, what was Sunday school about today? And then him and Ha and John would say, the answer is always for the glory of God. That's always the answer in a Presbyterian church. And my daughter said, or Jesus, that's the answer, one of the two. Well, of course, what is the purpose of spiritual gifts? To glorify God. Look at our text. That in all things, God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Your spiritual gifts were first of all given to you that this might be a conduit, a way to bring glory to God in the exercise of them. Now the way to not glorify God is to live for self, never thinking, how can I serve and minister to others in the congregation? How can I please God and shine the spotlight on Him and His provision?" The first purpose of spiritual gifts is to glorify God. The second purpose is to increase dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Francis Schaeffer said when I heard him speak in 1981, when he was in Memphis, Francis Schaeffer said that evening in his first talk, he said, if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from most believers, they wouldn't notice for about a decade. 
So where do you now minister and serve consciously relying on the empowering of the Holy Spirit? Because these gifts we're talking about, they're the gifts of the Spirit. And they are meant to increase dependence upon Him. Where do you consciously rely, leaning hard on His strengthening? A third purpose for spiritual gifts are to increase dependence upon the body of Christ. It's interesting in Paul's gift list in Ephesians 4, he specifically says, you need the gifts of others. I need your gifts of helps and encouragement and service and mercy and administration. Never think your gift is small or unimportant. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that every believer's gift is vital to the functioning of the body. What spiritual gifts, by the way, let's do a test here. What spiritual gifts that are listed in Scripture can the church do without? None. What would happen if this congregation were all helps and service? No word ministry would get done. What about if, if everyone here had the gift of teaching? No gifts of administration, no administration or encouragement or mercy would happen. And the point that I'm making is no single believer has all the gifts. And to properly function, a properly functioning church is one where you see all the gifts working. A fourth purpose for spiritual gifts. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4. It is to build up the body. How does any congregation come to maturity and grow up only as members are exercising their spiritual gifts? How do you apply this word? I want to make a very, I had a lengthy introduction. I want to have a lengthy section of application. Because many of you still have a lot of questions. And so I'm going to try to answer them as we apply this very specifically to you. The first will be a clear imperative. Determine your gifts. How do you go about doing this? Especially if you're 13, 14 and you're a believer and you're thinking, Cry, I don't know where to start. First of all, read those four gift passages in depth. You can do it as I said this afternoon. It's very simple. Second, seek counsel from wise believers. Ask people who know you, your elder, your dad. Where do you think I could best minister? Where do you see me serving most effectively? Ask your ruling elders. And then trust God to work through his ordained spiritual leadership. So if an elder approaches you to consider a ministry, view that as God's means. He sees your gifts and thinks you could function in that ministry. I tell the story often. It's one of my favorite moments in life. 30 years ago, I was going to Matamoros, Mexico. I was going to teach in a seminary. And my Spanglish is worse than anyone in here. And so <clears throat> I had a, had a translator appointed. And at the last minute, my translator fell deathly ill. And so this was on Sunday night. I was going to start lecturing the next morning. <clears throat> and there was a, a woman named Dr. Laura in the church who had a thriving clinic in Matamoros. And I noticed that her Spanish was perfect and her English was perfect. And so I walked up to her and said, Dr. Laura, this is ridiculous. And if you feel, say no, I won't even have my feelings hurt. But I don't have a translator for this entire week. Would you be willing to come over and translate for me? I said, I know that would mean closing down your clinic in a thriving business. I know that would mean a loss of thousands of dollars of business for you. 
but would you just consider it? Would you go home and pray about it? She said, yes. And I said, just like that? She said, whenever God sends the elders to me to ask me to serve, I always say, yes. So that was our joke all week long. If I asked her to do something, she said, yes. But if, you, if you're thinking, where should I serve? When the elders come to you and say, think about serving here. Say, yes. That's God's means. And then prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and necessary push you by the word into the role in Christ's church where you may be best serving the body. Another application. Determine how you will use your gifts. The first way you should use them is in love. Paul, it's no accident, by the way. Let's see if you can follow this math. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts. Guess what comes in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14? 1 Corinthians 13, love, where Paul makes the cogent argument that without love, your gifts are nothing. And so what Paul is arguing for in that context is to exercise the gifts of the Spirit in the fruit of the Spirit. Not only should you determine to exercise your gifts in love for the body, but look at Peter's words in 1 Peter 4. As a good steward of God's grace, knowing that your spiritual gifts you will give an account for one day. And you should use your gifts in a way that will build up the body. That's what Paul speaks of in Ephesians 4, in the greatest fashion. Now, I have to say something very difficult about gifts because I'm not blind. This is my 37th year of pastoring, and so this comes from deep and long experience and talking to a lot of other pastors. What about... What about that person who professes to be a believer but never, ever demonstrates any spiritual gift or exercises them for the building up of the body? How do we interpret that? This is a profoundly serious issue with several explanations. Let me give you what I think the different answers to that question are. What do you say about the person who never exercises any gift. The first answer, and we say with tears in our eyes, they're a false professor. The reason why there's no exercise of spiritual gifts is because there are none. The Holy Spirit hasn't taken up residence. And so if you're here today and you're saying, I, I have no spiritual gifts, I really have no interest in serving others. My friend, I would plead with you the gospel. I would plead with you the gospel to say, Today, you can have a change of heart. If you'll cry out to Christ, looking to him in faith and repentance, not only will he save you eternally, he will send his spirit into your heart who comes not empty-handed, but bringing gifts. There's a second answer, a second response. And this is the person who's converted, but they're a grace despiser. They don't see the gifts of the spirit as something important and and a, and a sign of God's grace, they think little of the gifts of grace. I told the story once again several times, but my late aunt Francesca decided late in life that she wanted to take up painting. She lived in California. And so she showed up on our doorstep one day, and this, she was carrying this painting. It was about this broad. It was about this tall, and it was wrapped in butcher paper, and she carried it very carefully. And she loved my mom. They were like this, even though they were different as night and day. And she says, I brought you a gift. And my mom said, 
oh, okay, I can't wait to see it. And so they tore the butcher paper off, and it was in a frame that probably cost about as much as your car. It was an astounding frame. And it was a seascape, and it was the most hideous thing you'd ever seen. <laughs> and she handed it to my mom, and my mom said, oh, Frankie, I, I just don't know what to say. And Frankie said, Janice, I painted it for that wall right there because you've never had anything on that wall. Here, help me hang it up. I know you'll want to put it up. And Mom said, Frankie, I'll get around to it later. Just stick it over there behind that chair. And so for the entire weekend that she was there, Frankie would say, Janice, you ready to hang up that painting yet? No, no, we'll get to it later. And so her last words as she got out of, out of our door and was getting on a plane to go back to California, she said, Janice, uh, well, I can't wait to see the painting next time I'm here. So she left. As soon as the door closed behind her, my mom said, Carl, put that painting in the closet. So I did. Thought nothing of it. A year and a half went by. There's a knock on the door, and it was Aunt Frankie. She walked in the door, and she looked at the wall, and she turned to my mom, and she said, where is my gift? And my mom, who is not a crier, I think I saw her shed tears twice in her life, and this was the second time. Tears came in her eyes. She was broken hearted. She said, let's hang it up right now. So she and Frankie got the painting. They hung it up, and it was awful. People would come into my mom's house and say, Janice, what's the deal with the finger painting up there? <laughs> so a couple of years went by, and Frankie died. Mom went to the funeral, flew out to California. When she came home, I'm trying to inject a little humor. My timing is always bad. I said, Mom, you could... Take the painting down now, she said, I am never taking that painting down. And sure enough, she kept the painting on her wall till the day she died. She said, I'm not going to despise this gift from someone who loved me so much. And that's what I would say, perhaps the second answer to those who profess to be a believer but never exercise any gifts. I would say, are you despising the gift that God has given you? How much greater is that gift than the gift my Aunt Frankie gave to my mom? And how much more should God be grieved that you despise his gifts? I would say, too, if you are not using your gifts to the fullest to build up the body, the whole church is limping. The whole church is stuck in immaturity. And more importantly, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. I would say by way of application, too, one of the things I would encourage you to look at right now, we're in that season, a season where we're praying regularly, that season of asking the Lord to raise up new elders and deacons. And so we've nominated men. Every Wednesday night for almost 20 weeks, we're meeting for training. We'll have a time of examination. Those men will be held before you. You'll choose those men who you would have to be your elders and deacons, and then we'll lay hands on them and ordain them. But I will tell you, one of the prerequisites for ordained office is the possession of evident spiritual gifts that are being used. You remember the original deacons in Acts chapter 6. The congregation was told they had to be men who were full of the Holy Spirit. Elders, too, must have evident spiritual gifts, especially teaching or that gift named in Romans 12 of leadership. Deacons must have the gift of helps mercy and service. I would say as well to you, I would remind you by way of application that all of the gifts when you study them are doing gifts. And so let me ask you, what are you doing with your gifts? Who are you serving?
The gifts are for edification, so who are you building up? Last November, I had a conversation with a young man about his gifts. And the young man told me very specifically, very quick in the conversation, that he had the gift of teaching. So I, of course, I asked him, who are you teaching? Where and when? He said, well, I really enjoy study and research. I continued to probe. But who are you teaching? Do others come for you for, come to you for insight into scripture? Well, no. When you teach, do people get it? Well, I've really never taught anyone. I just like to study. My friends, the Holy Spirit does not come and give gifts for you to put on the shelf. But I'd say by final way of application, spiritual gifts are the proof, the evidence that God saved you to incorporate you into a body. God never intended to save you, to just punch your ticket for heaven and then let you live in pious aloofness for the next 40 years. God saved you to live in a body where you're deeply dependent on them, where you minister to others and others minister to you. A healthy church is one where all the legitimate gifts of the Spirit are functioning and you are dependent on them. May God mature us as we exercise the gifts of his Holy Spirit to the fullest. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the richness of the redemption you have provided. That you give us eternal life through the Son, and you give us the power of the Spirit now. And so we would ask that you would enable us to mortify laziness and put on the diligent use of the gifts you've entrusted to us. Remind us to rely on the Spirit's enabling and the gifts of others. Knit us together in love. Cause us to be diligent stewards who on the last day will have nothing to be ashamed of.